So last week we started a new sermon series uh, called uh, Who is Jesus? Discovering Jesus through the gospel according to John. Um, And uh, so from last week through Easter, we'll be kind of journeying through the gospel of John and uh, kind of working our way systematically, chronologically through John's presentation of Jesus as we do this, we're, we're coming back to like the, the central question of our, our faith tradition. And that, that's, who is Jesus? Like, what sort of significance does Jesus play um, in our lives and in our, our world? And uh, we recognize that <laughs> John's a good gospel to do this in because John's a theologian. And so, like, the stories that John is telling us are his own theological interpretations of who Jesus is. And so... Um, Hopefully we'll come to some, some interesting insights uh, throughout this series as we, we journey with John. So that's where we're headed for the next couple months. Um, that's where we're headed this morning. As we get ready to jump in, I invite you to join me for a prayer. Loving God, uh, we're grateful for uh, the gift of technology that um, even in this time where um, it may not feel uh, wise or safe to, to be together physically that we can um, still call in and, and see one another and uh, be with one another. Uh, what a profound gift uh, that, that is for us in this season. God, we're grateful that even more than just being connected uh, through technology, that, that we acknowledge that your spirit is, is dwelling among us, that your spirit meets us in our individual homes, and is somehow connecting us and uniting us um, in this profound mystery that is the body of Christ. So thank you, God, for that. Um, now as we turn to the scriptures and wrestle with them, we, we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. And pray all this in his name. Amen. In the theological gold mind that is the dinner scene from Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, we have uh, all of our main characters, and when I say characters, I don't just mean like people in a story. Like I'm talking like actual characters, right? All of these people are a bit eclectic. We have our, our main characters sitting around a dinner table, and we have uh, our, main, our main character, Ricky Bobby, at the one end, played by Will Ferrell, this world-renowned uh, NASCAR superstar. On the other end is his wife. On the sides of the table, we have their two boys, Walker and Texas Ranger, or they call him T.R., uh, on the other side of the table, we have Ricky's father-in-law and then his best friend, Cal Naughton Jr., uh, played by John C. Riley, another world-renowned super NASCAR superstar. And as they begin dinner, Ricky does as apparently he, he's accustomed to do and begins with a word of prayer. And as he begins his prayer, he begins by saying, Dear Lord, baby Jesus. From that point on, he, he begins to list off all of these outrageous, outlandish things and his uh, life that he's gained through his superstardom and gives all sorts of credit to uh, God for it, but does so through all of like these baby attributes of Jesus. At one point throughout the prayer, his wife cuts him off and says, Ricky, you know that Jesus grew up, right? <laughs> Which leads them into this dispute of like their favorite versions of Jesus. Um, Ricky doubles down and says, I like the Christmas version better of Jesus. I like the baby version of Jesus best. And somewhere Along the way, his friend Cal jumps in and says, well, you know, I, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Uh, I, I like to, uh, um, because it says I want to be formal, 
but I, I also like to party too. Uh, and Cal sums this up by saying, you know, I like to party, so I like my version of Jesus to like to party as well. Now, whether the writers of this movie recognized it or not, and bear with me here, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I actually don't think that this particular version of Jesus is quite that absurd. And here's why. Because when we look at the um, this version of Jesus, <laughs> I think it actually can make sense within the story that we see taking place in John chapter 2. Because in John chapter 2, we find Jesus at a party. We find Jesus at a, a wedding in a city known as Cana. And John, or Jesus finds himself at this wedding in Cana alongside his mother Mary and his disciples. And so while Jesus, his mother Mary, and his disciples are at this wedding in Cana, we're told that the wine gives out. They run out of wine. And this becomes like the central conflict, the central tension within the story, the fact that like they ran out of wine. I don't know about you, but that, that feels odd to me that that would be like the, the central tension within a story. But I think it's helpful to recognize that like within the first century when the story is taking place, this is a, a culture that places such high esteem on things like hospitality. So, um, acts of hospitality are seen as like what it means to be human and so um uh um to to commit some sort of act of inhospitality would have been seen as like going totally against the grain now these acts of hospitality like giving food and drink to people perhaps even giving shelter to people wouldn't have made you like you know a dorothy day level of saint but they were like just rather parts of what it meant to be human like this is what you do uh, to not do that would to be co to commit some sort of social faux pas. To translate it to today, it's like asking a woman if she's pregnant, right? Like, you just don't do that. Like, if you don't do that, that doesn't mean that you're like a saint. But to do that means that, like, you've, you've uh, committed some sort of social faux pas, right? So to commit um, acts of hospitality just meant that, like, you were part of what it meant to be a standard human. But to commit an act of inhospitality was a social faux pas. So for... Um, for the couple getting married, this like running out of wine would have in some ways been a, a threat of like ruining their reputation. Um, as uh, the New Testament scholar N.C. Wright puts it, running out of wine was not just inconvenient, but a social disaster and disgrace. The family would have to live with the shame of it for a long time to come. Bride and groom might regard it as bringing bad luck on their married life. And and I think that the key here is that it's not just an embarrassment, it's not just an inconvenience, but that it would have been interpreted as some act of like shame upon them. See, more than just being a culture of hospitality, this is a, a culture that uses things like honor and shame as social currency. So to, to honor someone or to bring honor upon yourself, to like bring merit and esteem um, upon yourself, would have been to elevate yourself up the social ladder. And the opposite is true as well, to like commit some sort of act of shame that brings shame upon yourself or for somebody else to shame you would have relegated you down the, so the social ladder. Now, the social ladder wasn't something that like we just perceived about ourselves, but like this was something that everybody would have been very well aware of because where you were on the social ladder compared to the person that you're interacting with would have dictated how you interact with one another. And so here at the beginning of their shared life together, this married couple has this like 
at their wedding event, which, mind you, the whole community would have been a part of, they have this shameful event where they run out of wine, bringing all sorts of shame upon themselves, dropping them, relegating them down the social ladder before their life together even begins. Now, shame, of course, plays a, a bit of a different role in our life and in our world today. Um, and yet to say that it plays a different role in our life and in our world today doesn't um, like diminish any sort of the, the pain that can come from shame, right? Um, social researcher uh, Brene Brown describes shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It speaks to like at the core of who we are is like messed up that uh, things like love and belonging and acceptance, these things that we are all craving and longing for, like we're not capable of that. And the way that shame works in our, our life is a bit of like a, a spiral, right? Maybe uh, we do something embarrassing. Maybe we stumble in a, in a crowd and we say, oh, that I'm such an embarrassment. But then that embarrassment means like I'm always an embarrassment. And because I'm always an embarrassment, like I can never do anything right. And because I can never do anything right, I'm never going to succeed in life. And because I never succeed in life, like I'm no longer worthy of love and belonging and community and friendship and people to love and care for me. Perhaps you can experience or you can relate to that, right? That, that shame spiral of how quickly things can go. And so while shame plays a different role in our world than in Jesus's day, it certainly is still quite painful and powerful. So perhaps in our own lives, shame can creep in in a, a variety of different ways. Maybe shame creeps in uh, at the end of the month when we're trying to reconcile our finances and there just isn't enough money to go around. And we begin to think through what that conversation with our family or our friend will be like when we're asking for money once again. And we begin to like have those questions of like, am I even worthy to be called an adult? <laughs> Perhaps shame can creep into our life when we think back on that decision that we made or that relationship that we were in or that habit that consumed much of our life for far too long. Perhaps shame can creep into our lives from that still small voice of a caregiver from years and years ago that tells us that we would never amount to anything. See, shame plays a, a very different role in our world and in our lives, and yet it's still incredibly painful and powerful. And so at the beginning of their shared life together, this, this couple has this event that would have been interpreted as bringing all sorts of shame upon themselves. So what does Jesus do here? What's his response to this? Well, John tells us that he rips off his tunic and he has a tuxedo t-shirt on and says, I'm here to party. Not quite, but you can imagine, right? Because Jesus' Jesus's response to the fact that they ran out of wine is to take water and turn it into wine, to provide more wine to the party, right? But he doesn't just turn water into wine. We're told that he turns uh, six jars of water into wine. Now, when, when I think jar, I think of like a mason jar. Um, but John tells us that each of these jars contains something like 20 to 30 gallons each, which means that Jesus turned... Uh, like 120 to 180 gallons of water into 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And if you're like, that's an absurd amount of wine, you have picked up on what John's trying to do. <laughs> like, it's an absurd amount of wine. And this is like Jesus's generous and generative act to this couple in the midst of their shame. Because Jesus didn't just show up with a bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, he brought 
like a boatload of wine. And like the wedding had been going on for a while, right? Like these people had already been consuming a good bit of wine. And so Jesus continues to provide more to it. More than that, like uh, he doesn't just show up with a bottle of Winking Owl from Aldi. Like we're told that this is the good stuff, right? Like this is expensive, good, fancy, delicious wine. And this is what Jesus brings to the party. So like you can imagine the response of the guests, right? Like who thought that the party was over and now there's all sorts of more wine. It would be like being at a friend's uh, Christmas party and thinking that the last peanut cluster got taken out of your hand only for the, the host to come out with like 10 party trays, right? You would be elated at that moment, right? But more than thinking about the response of the guests, think about like the response of the family. Like these weren't just the ones who like witnessed the shaming, but these were the ones who experienced the shaming. And for the family who had experienced the shaming, what they had just experienced was, was Jesus taking the source of their shame and transforming it into the source of their celebrating. And I think that this becomes like a really important aspect of this story. That Jesus, both 2,000 years ago and today, that Jesus, both in our world at large and in our own personal lives, has the power to transform um, our source of shame into a source of celebration. And here's what I mean by this. Like, if, if shame is this intensely painful feeling that we are flawed, that we are unworthy of love and belonging, if, if, if shame can send us down this spiral to quickly coming to this point that I'm utterly worthless, then I hope that there's some sort of solution to like combat this or alleviate it, right? And thankfully there is. Um, Brene Brown would suggest that um, empathy is like one of the greatest ways of like alleviating shame. And she defines uh, empathy uh, in contrast to sympathy. So imagine that you've fallen down a pit and you're crying out for help and somebody stops at the pit and looks down and says, ooh, that looks like a bad situation sorry about it, and keeps on walking, right? <laughs> we might call that sympathy. That sympathy uh, is feeling for someone. But imagine that you're down that pit, you're crying out, and someone stops, and they say, oh my goodness, let me go grab something. And they come back with a ladder, drop down into the pit with you, and they say, I'm sorry about this experience, but I'm here with you. And they just stay there with you. And perhaps they might even say after a while, and I know a way out. That's what we might call empathy. Empathy isn't feeling for, but empathy is feeling with. And when we hear this word with, I don't know about you, but it gets all sorts of theological uh, ideas firing. Because at the core of who Jesus is, is this idea of with. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is described as Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, in the opening chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is described as the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us, dwelt with us. When we talk about Jesus, when we talk about um, God incarnate, we can say that the incarnation in some way is like this act of divine empathy. But of course there's more to the story because we're in John's gospel and there's always more to the story. Uh, John begins his story with a bit of a, a, a wink, uh, in some ways alluding that this particular story is pointing to a, the bigger story of Jesus. 
And in the very opening line of, of the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, we're told that on the third day, which this is John giving us a big wink, hoping that we're picking up on what he's talking about. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know that the third day represents something significant in the life of Jesus. Because it represents none other than the resurrection, right? But to talk about the resurrection, we also have to ask what happened three days prior that would lead to Jesus being raised from the dead. And of course, three days later was Jesus' death. But not just a death, an execution. And not just an execution, but like a crucifixion. See, when we talk about uh, the cross, we often talk about like it's, it's physical pain that it would have inflicted. And that most certainly is part of the story. But for the Romans, they thought that they had crafted the perfect form of like ending someone's life. And they tapped into not just physical pain, but also into the mental and emotional pain that would come with it. See, when crucifixions happened, they didn't happen in the, the side alleys of the empire, but they happened on the front and center thoroughfares through town. And it was an act of like publicly shaming those who had committed acts against the empire. So the cross is not just about physical pain, but it's also about like the shaming that can come from the, the mental and emotional turmoil. Um, the, the cross was, was seen even... Um, uh, was seen as such a, a shameful act that like even back in the Hebrew scriptures we see in Deuteronomy um, this uh, reflection that says that cursed is anyone or maybe we could even say shamed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Now we fast forward a few years after the the death and resurrection of Jesus and we have the apostle Paul wrestling about wrestling through all of this. We see him wrestling through like these Hebrew scriptures that say cursed shamed is anyone who hangs on a tree and then thinking about like this this risen Jesus who hung on a tree himself. And he begins to process this and he he concludes that like as Jesus hangs on this cross, certainly cursed is he, shamed is he. But what happens there is like the shame that we have ever experienced and that we will ever experience in our life collectively as human beings was placed upon Jesus. So that Jesus becomes like the weight of our collective shame. And Jesus experiences the collective weight of our shame, past, present, and future, to the point that it brings him to like a physical and a social death. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't stay there dead. But the good news is that Jesus overcomes from the weight of that collective sort of shame. And the witness of the entire New Testament is that because Jesus rises, so too can we. So the good news of all of this is that Jesus, God in Christ enters into the source of our shame, taking on the weight of our shame, experiencing the full weight and consequences of our, the shame that we can experience in this life to the point of like going to the furthest extent of it, physical and social death only to overcome it and grab our hands and bring us up out of it so that the source of shame now becomes the source of celebration. I mean, my goodness, like we literally have a cross <laughs> in our sanctuary, an instrument of death. That's how much Jesus has transformed the source of uh, shame into the source of celebration. Now it's something that we celebrate, not something that brings about shame upon us. And so John begins his gospel with this story of Jesus transforming uh, water into wine. 
transforming the source of, of shame into a source of celebration. And he does this hinting, pointing to, winking to the bigger story of Jesus, where Jesus uh, transforms our collective shame into a collective source of celebration. Now here's what this means for us. When we find ourselves um, uh, experiencing shame, when we find ourselves getting caught up on that shame cycle, what this means for us is that we can pull that emergency brake on the way down. And we can look at shame and call shame what it is. Because shame is a liar. <laughs> because if shame wants us to feel unworthy, if shame wants us to feel like we are caught in the bottom of a pit all by ourselves, the reality is, is that God in Christ meets us there. And that there is no place of unworthiness that we can go to where God has not yet been to meet us. And so when we get caught up in that shame spiral, on our way down, we catch up with Christ who meets us there. Who's entered into the sources of our shame, who overcomes it and transforms the source of shame into the source of celebration. And because he rises from that, we too can rise. And so friends, when we find ourselves getting caught up in that spiral when we begin to feel the isolating, devastating effects of shame, may we know that uh, we encounter God in Christ there uh, who looks at us and says, I'm with you uh, and extends to us a, transfigure, or a transforming hand um, to take what was once a source of shame in our life to transform it into a source of celebration. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, we're grateful uh, for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of the incarnation, uh, for the gift that is uh, God with us, for the gift of divine empathy. That when we experience shame in our life, that you don't stand on the sidelines and feel for us, but that in Christ, you, you jumped into that experience with us. And God, we're grateful um, that through your resurrecting power, uh, you have the, the, the power to transform uh, the sources of shame in our life into sources of celebration. So God, in... Um, the midst of what just feels like a really heavy time and season, um, we acknowledge this. And we ask that um, in those times when we get caught up in these shame spirals, that your spirit can be um, calling out to us, letting us know that we are not alone, that we are seen, that we are known, and that we are indeed incredibly and profoundly worthy of love and belonging because you invite each and every one of us to be part of your family. God, transform the sources of our shame into sources of celebration. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.